Alrighty, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would come and speak to your children today. Lord, either we have been in, are in, or are going to be in a storm. So what we're going to read today is very relevant, very applicable. I pray that you'd give us ears to hear. We learned last week how how we are to hear your word. And we are to hear intently and prayerfully and reverently and humbly. And so I pray you'd give us all ears to hear today that this this story, this section of Scripture would do us spiritual good, would profit our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was about 10 years old, we got a great Christmas present one year. My mom was so good at giving Christmas presents. We had seven kids in our family. There's five boys and two girls. So we're pretty poor. We're a good Catholic family. No birth control, lots of kids. And (laughs) that's how it worked. So there's seven of us kids, and because there's seven mouths to feed, we didn't have much money. And I don't know how my mom did it, but she would just find the greatest presents for Christmas. One year, somehow, she got us a boat. And we loved to go fishing. My dad would take us fishing every Saturday. And so she she got this old boat. Now, it wasn't just any boat. This was like a homemade jerry-rigged boat. <laughs> it was like a, like a torpedo that was carved out in the middle. And it had this little tiny mo- motor in the back that would putt-putt around the lake. You could go maybe two or three miles an hour, but it would take you somewhere. So she got us this present, and I was one of the first of the kids that got to try it out. And we went to Camp Far West Lake up north of Lincoln, And I remember me and my buddy were going out in this boat, and we were about 10, 11 years old. We got out to the middle of the lake, and we were feeling pretty proud of ourselves and pretty top dog. You know, we're way out here in the middle of the lake, and we looked down around our feet, and we noticed that there's water inside the boat. And we noticed that it was getting more and more water, and the boat's starting to fill up more and more. And so we started to panic a little bit, and we started to try to bail water out of this boat. But as fast as we could bail, water kept coming into the boat. I guess whoever sold us this boat hadn't sealed it very well. And so at this point, we're freaking out. And we're starting to yell, Help! Help! To anybody who was around with an earshot, we're screaming at the top of our lungs, Help! We, we really thought we were going to sink to the bottom of the lake and die. And finally, somebody, some kind soul, took mercy on us and sped over in his big, powerful motorboat and hooked a rope on and towed us to the dock. And we're so glad to see that guy. But when I was reading the text this week, that's what I thought of. Here we have these disciples who are scared, who are afraid for their lives. Now, if if I and my friend could be afraid for our lives when the, the sea was like glass, it was calm, placid, but yet we were afraid that we were going to drown, how much more? Could the apostles of Christ have that kind of fear in their heart when they faced one of the most raging storms that had ever happened there in the Sea of Galilee? So as we work our way through this story this morning, I've got four lessons I want to impart to you today. There's four lessons. Number one, the master may send us into the storm because that's what he did here. He may send you and I into a storm. Now, let's just ask ourselves a couple of questions as we get rolling here. Number one, when did this event take place? 
Well, take a look at what Luke says. Now on one of those days... Thanks a lot, Luke. (laughs) That doesn't seem to help a whole lot. On one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. Luke, I think, is intentionally ambiguous here. Because what he's done is he's departed from a strict chronology. We expect when people give a biographical account that they're going to go point A to point B to point C and tell it all in order, right? Sometimes the gospel writers don't do that. Sometimes they link their material thematically. Like they take everything associated with a single theme, lump it together, and that's kind of what Luke has been doing. Because he tells us that when Jesus or when Mary and Jesus' brothers came to get him, they tell us that that happened after the telling of the parable of the four soils. But if you check out Mark and Luke, they tell us it was before. So I, I believe what we have here is Luke intentionally departed from the chronology because he wanted to lump in Mary and Jesus' brothers coming to Jesus because that illustrated what... Jesus had just taught in the parable of the four soils how we have to hear in a particular way and obey the word of God. But if we go over to to Mark's gospel, we get some help with when this took place. In Mark chapter 4, verse 1, it says that the crowds were so immense, so great, that for Jesus to be able to teach them, he had to get into a boat and go back a little ways from the shore and sit down, and he addressed the multitude there on the bank. And for that entire day, he told parable after parable after parable. He was teaching the multitudes. Later on, after he was done teaching the multitudes, he went away privately with his disciples, and they began asking him to give them the meaning of those parables. So perhaps after a day of preaching and teaching, Jesus retires and has some food and a meal with his disciples, and they discuss the meaning of those parables. But then, we're told in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, on that day, and it's the day that he's just told all these parables, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So it was the day that he spent teaching the vast crowds, I don't know how many people here have done a whole lot of preaching or teaching in a single day, but it can be exhausting. I take my hat off to people like John Wesley and George Whitfield because those guys would preach three or four times every day. And you're lucky to find a preacher today that preaches more than twice a week. I mean, Whitfield preached 17,000 sermons in his lifetime. And he had a brief lifetime. He died in his late 50s. He just burnt himself out for the glory of God. But it is exhausting. It's, it's hard physical and mental. It's mentally taxing on a person to do that. Now, Jesus has been doing this day after day, week after week, month after month. He's got huge crowds. He's trying to project his voice so they can all hear him without the help of amplification. Now, being that he's in a boat and they're on the shore, that's going to help some of that. But he's tired and he's spent. And at this point in his ministry, he just needs to get recharged. He needs some rest. So he says, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to the other side of the lake. And I don't know if you realize this, but the other side of the lake was where they meet the uh, Gadarene demoniac. This was a desolate uninhabited part of the Lake of Galilee. So it's a place he could get away from the crowds. As long as he's where the crowds are, he is going to be taxing himself because all of them have needs that they need Jesus to meet. They're they're sick. They're demon-possessed. They want the Word of God. And Jesus just can't rest. 
you remember it says over in Mark chapter 3 that the crowds were so immense that he couldn't even take a meal. He couldn't even take time to eat. That's the, the demands on his life were so pressing. So to escape the multitudes, he decides to take a boat and to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if he had just decided to walk, what's going to happen? <laughs> They're all going to follow him. He's not going to get any rest. Most of the multitude don't have a boat. And so, guess who does have a boat? Who's, who's amongst Jesus' closest men that's got a boat? Peter. Yeah, the, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're all fishermen. Remember back in Luke chapter 5, that both of them were out there on the sea, and Jesus gave them this huge catch of fish? Well, they have boats. And so it's my hunch, although we're not told that specifically here, it's my hunch it was probably Peter's or James and John's fishing boat that they took across to the other side of the lake. Now that's the time frame. It was on the day that Jesus was wiped out and exhausted from his ministry that in the evening they decided to go across. Second question, where? Where are they when this takes place? Well, we'll start in the easiest one. They're in a boat, (laughs) we're told. Look at the text. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Two things focus on. They're in a boat. The boat is on a lake. Let's just talk about both of those for a minute. This was not uh, a small little rowboat. We know that because verse 23 says that they were sailing along. So this boat had sails. It wasn't sailless. It had sails. So they're sailing along in this boat. It's got sails. But we're not talking a yacht or a luxury liner or a cruise ship either. We're talking about a small, crude fishing vessel. Perhaps it would seat up to 15 people. So this is the kind of boat that Jesus is on. And Mark tells us that other boats were with him. So it wasn't one solitary boat. You've got the boat that Jesus and his apostles are on, but you've got a few other boats. So wherever Jesus went, he had other disciples other than the twelve. And they're at all different stages of spiritual experience. Some of them are simply curious. Some of them are following him because they know that he's the master. And so when Jesus decides to go across, some of these other disciples found a boat somewhere and they're starting to tag along with him. So they're in a boat on a lake. Now what lake are we talking about? What lake could this be? Where? First of all, ask yourself this question. Where was Peter's hometown, and where did he send his boats out to for his fishing business? It was the Sea of Galilee. But that's kind of a misnomer. They call it the Sea of Galilee. But the Sea of Galilee is not a sea. <laughs> it's not like the Mediterranean Sea that's salt water. It's a freshwater lake. And it's actually inland. It's not, you know, as you would expect an ocean, like the Pacific Ocean. It's not like that at all. It's a lake, inland. And this particular lake is is fascinating. Let me tell you a little bit about the Sea of Galilee, because it's going to play into our study today. This lake was 13 miles long and 7 miles wide. But the most important thing to know about it is it's 682 feet below sea level. Now, that is the lowest lake on the planet. 
And that's why these storms would suddenly and violently and unexpectedly hit all the time on the Sea of Galilee. It's only 30 miles west of the Mediterranean Sea. I'm sorry, 30 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. And so the winds that come from the sea would blow over those hills and come down. Now, in every direction around this lake, you look up and there's mountains or there's hills. To the north, you've got the mountains of, uh, of Lebanon. And some of those mountains are ice or snow-capped and they're towering. Some of them are 10,000 feet high. So you've got these snow-covered mountains to the north. You look over to the west and there's the Golan Heights. And the hot air from the deserts comes from that direction. And so you've got the winds from the sea, you've got winds, the cold winds from the north, you've got the hot winds from the west, and you've, and you've got this bowl-shaped valley, 682 feet down, with mountains on every direction. And so when those winds whip up, and they start to drop down into this valley, there, there's ravines that they have to go through, and as the winds go through the ravines, they immensely speed up, so by the time they hit the water, it's all like an explosion. There's, there's a great stress that hits the water, and the waters agitate very quickly. Historians who have actually watched this will tell you there were clear skies, and out of the blue, one minute, it's calm, the next minute, there's this raging storm that hits the lake. And usually it happens between noon and 6 p.m. The worst months of all are December, January, and February, the winter months. And it's especially bad when you get a wind from the north because the winds are so cold, they're denser and they're heavier that they drop and they drop fast and they funnel through those ravines and by the time they hit the warmer air on the bottom, there's this stress level and very, very quickly the storm will start raging on the Sea of Galilee. You can have waves of between 5 and 10 feet high. And this isn't an ocean, remember. This is a lake. So a 5 or a 10 foot wave is pretty tall when you come to a lake. So that's the situation that's taking place. Um, Luke calls it a fierce gale. A fierce gale. That word in the original is the usual word for hurricane. So this is not, you know, a 20 or 30 mile per hour breeze. This is maybe a 100 plus mile per hour gale that's coming through. And the winds are whipping up those waves and you've got 5 or 10 feet high waves crashing all over the place. Oh my goodness. Try to imagine just for a minute what it was be like if you were one of those apostles on that small fishing vessel. You've got the waves crashing over the side. The winds are howling. Maybe the sails are starting to split. Maybe they're coming loose. Everybody's yelling and crying out at the same time. What I find interesting is that the Lord is the one that made the decision to go across to the other side of the lake. Remember, it wasn't Peter, James, or John, or Andrew, or any of the others that said, Hey, look, Master, why don't we go over there for a while? It was Jesus who said to them, Let's go on over to the other side of the lake. Now, do you suppose that Jesus knew in advance that this storm might hit? That's the question that came to me. Or was he totally clueless about this? Well, let me give you a scripture that might help us here. It's John five nineteen to 20. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. 
For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. Now that might help us here. Jesus said, I don't do anything by myself. I only do the things that I see the Father doing. And He shows me all those things that He's doing because He loves me. So Jesus was in lockstep with His Father here. I believe Jesus saw what God was doing. God was about to calm a storm. God was about to deliver a demon-possessed man on the other side of this lake. God the Father is showing Jesus what He's about to do so that Jesus can do it right with Him in harmony. So, it's my hunch. I believe it's better than a hunch. I believe it's a pretty good um, implied estimate from this text that, that Jesus anticipated and could see what was coming up next. But in spite of that... He takes the the initiative to directly lead his disciples into this storm. Do you remember the widow of Nain? We studied that a while back. I think we have the same situation there. All of a sudden, Jesus decides to go to Nain. Now, nobody goes to Nain because it was this tiny little obscure village. There's nothing to do in Nain. There are not very many people that live there. But he decides he's going there. I believe it's because he saw the father willing to raise up a son of a widow there. And so Jesus goes, because he's going to participate with his father, raise up this widow's son. And notice who Jesus is leading into the storm. You would think, well, okay, I can understand Jesus leading his enemies into the storm to destroy them. But that's not who's going there. Who is it? It's his own disciples. And is he doing this because he's mad at them? They're actually obeying him. He told them, let's go to the other side, and they went. They complied. They obeyed his orders. So here we've got obedient disciples that Jesus is intentionally leading into a storm. When we come to situations like this, it's tempting for us to say things like, well, I guess I guess the Lord allowed them to face that storm. And we use that language a lot. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but I want to I want to challenge that this morning. Because is Jesus simply allowing his disciples to face a storm? I don't think so. He's making a decision to take them into the storm. Do you see that from the text? He made the decision to bring them along and take them directly into a storm. So, although it's true that God allows bad things to happen, to his disciples, it's also true that God causes us to face difficulties like storms in our life. In Isaiah 45, verse 7, the Lord says, I am the one who creates darkness and creates the light, who creates well-being and calamity, evil and good. The Lord himself takes responsibility not only for the good blessings in our life, for, for the things that we think are evil and, and things that we want to avoid at all costs. He takes responsibility. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, do you believe that God ever sends you into a storm? I do. <laughs> He's behind it all. If you say, well... The Lord's the one that does the good things in my life, and the devil's the one that does the bad things in my life. Well, why was the devil able to do those bad things in your life? 
Can he just simply make a decision? Is he autonomous? <laughs> when, when the devil wanted to do some bad things to Job, can he simply make a decision to do it? No, nope, he had to go through the Lord to get permission. When the devil wanted to sift Peter like wheat, could he simply make a decision? He'd ask permission to sift Peter like wheat. The devil has got to get permission before he can do what he does. So folks, do you believe that God is absolutely sovereign over everything in your life, including the tragedies, the suffering that you face? My dear wife is facing a lot of suffering right now. Does she attribute that? Well, that's just something to the devil and poor Jesus. He had his eyes turned and the devil snuck in while he wasn't looking and he got through. No, no. The Lord has a plan and a purpose and a meaning for everything that takes place, including our suffering, including these storms that frighten us and scare us. But when we face these storms, there are two attributes of God that we have to keep together that are difficult to hold together in tension. And on the one hand, you have the love of God. On the other hand, you have the sovereignty of God. Now, if we focus a lot on the love of God, we tend to discount His sovereignty. He's so loving, He's so kind, He's so gracious. And that's... The reason why He's not able to, to do this in this particular situation is because He just can't. But He would like to. He's, he's very kind and loving. So you, you're focusing on His love to the expense of His sovereignty. But if you focus on His sovereignty and you really gear down there, you start to see, oh yeah, the Lord really is in control of everything, but He must not be very loving because look at all these bad things that are happening in the world. So to the disciple, he's got to pull these two together. And he's got to believe both at the same time. God is good. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is love. Both are taught in Scripture. And if we relegate one over here and focus on another one, we're going to get out of balance as a Christian and we're going to suffer spiritually in our life. You've got to pull these together and believe them both. So I just wonder if anybody here this morning is facing a storm right now. I know our household is. My, my dear mother-in-law faces storms, it seems, continually with her health, one after the other after the other, surgery after surgery. But maybe you're facing a storm. Maybe it's the death of a loved one in your family. Or maybe it's the fact that you can't find work. Or maybe it's the fact that you can't seem to overcome your financial crises. Maybe you're going to have to go bankrupt. File chapter 11. Uh, maybe it's an illness. That's a storm that a lot of us face. Just this thing that we have to face and it just never goes away. We can't seem to get beyond it. It's just with us all the time. Whatever your storm is, you need to determine this first of all. God has planned it for His glory and for your good. It didn't catch Him by surprise. He's not unaware of it. He's fully aware of it. In fact, I believe that if you're facing a storm, the Lord is facing it with you. And when you hurt, he hurts. We learn that from the story of the widow whose son had died. When she was suffering, the Lord Jesus' heart was breaking for her. So, the first lesson we learn here is that the Master may lead you into a storm. And I think I could probably take it even further than that. The Master is going to lead you into a storm. 
if he hasn't already. Get ready for it. I remember a time when I was telling a friend of ours in Sonora that this this fellow there was saying, it just seems like one thing after another. I've had so much suffering in my life. He had this perennial back problem and he had back operations and surgeries and he still wasn't better and he was in pain all the time. And I said, boy, my heart goes out to you. It seems like I've never had to face anything like that. And I don't think it was a year later that our son took his life and we faced the greatest storm that we've ever faced in our lives during that year. So it's just a matter of time. You're going to face a storm and the Lord is going to take you through that storm. Secondly, the master may sleep in the storm because that's exactly what we find taking place here. Um, Let's read it. Verse 23. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended. That's how it happens. It just descends from the heights. It comes down, descends on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. The uh, Gospel of Mark says that the boat was starting to fill up. So these waves are crashing over the side. The winds are howling. I don't know. Maybe those sails are in tatters by now. (laughs) Uh, the, The disciples are screaming and crying and shouting. That's the situation. The, the, the boat's filling up with water. There's panic. And they go, and they look at Jesus, and where is he? He's in the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion, according to Mark's gospel. He's just zonked out. Now, on the human level, I could understand that, because he was exhausted. But, I mean, let's really take these things as they are. I don't care how exhausted you are. Are you going to be able to sleep when waves are crashing over the side, drenching you, and the winds are howling, and your disciples are screaming in your ears? I mean, nobody, I don't care how tired you are, is going to sleep through that. So I call this a miracle sleep. This is almost as great as miracle as when Jesus wakens and then calms the storm. It's amazing. As he's sleeping there, you see his true humanity. And then when he wakens and stands up and calms the storm, you see his true deity. God and man and one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what I really find fascinating here, and catch this, is the storm couldn't wake him up. But what did? The cries of his disciples. He's knocked out, he's zonked, he's oblivious to the storm raging around him. But as soon as his frightened and stressed out disciples come to him and cry to him, he awakens like that. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful picture of, of any of us when we're frightened and we're scared and we're panicked and we're stressed? When we go to Jesus, his ear is open. He's going to awake. He's going to come to your aid. He's going to rouse himself to come to your side. I love that about Jesus from this, this story here. So we ought never doubt that the Lord loves us and cares for us and is tender towards us. You know, it would have been a lot easier, wouldn't it, if Jesus had provided some leadership in this example. If he had said, boys, I can see a storm's coming. Let's get ready. Peter, you take the wheel over there. James, you go to the back of the boat and make sure the rudder's going in the right direction. John, I want you to make sure those sails are secure. And Andrew, make sure that the gear is tied down. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a big one. But we can make it. But Jesus wasn't doing anything like that. He's sleeping. 
And he's leaving his disciples on their own to try to face this storm. So that's the, what we need to remember this morning is that not only will Jesus lead us into the storm, but it may appear to us while we're in that storm that he's off asleep. It seems like he's not doing anything. It may seem like he's unaware of our suffering. It, he doesn't seem to be answering our prayer. We pray for healing. We don't get better. We're the same. And this can really stretch our faith. Mark's gospel says, uh, the disciples said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Have you ever felt like that? You're going through some deep suffering and you're praying and God isn't answering that prayer. He's not taking away the suffering. The storm is still raging. And we're tempted to say just what they said. Lord, don't you even care that I'm going through this? Why aren't you doing something? Have you ever said something like that to God? (laughs) Why? This is the big question. Why? Why aren't you doing something, Lord? And we can reproach the Lord. We can rail at Him. We can express unbelief when we're going through this. But at the right time, Jesus awakens and He calms the storm. And at the right time, He's going to awaken and He's going to calm our storm. And He knows when that right time is. So, he, we might find the Master sleeping in the storm. Thirdly, the Master may rise and calm the storm. Look at the situation in verse 24. They came to Jesus and woke Him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. He rebuked the winds and the waves. Now, to rebuke something, you have to speak. Jesus is saying something. He's correcting. He's putting the winds and the waves in their place here. Over in Mark's Gospel, it tells us exactly what he said. He said, hush, be still. That was his rebuke. He's speaking to the wind and the waves, hush, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed him. (laughs) This is amazing. What kind of person tells another person, hush, be still? A parent does. A lot of times in church, if you've got a, a child that's acting up, you say, shh, stop that, be still. Listen to Pastor Brian. Color on your paper. (laughs) Whatever. So Jesus is taking the part of of a parent, and he's looking at the winds and the waves just like a disobedient, ornery little kid who's acting up. Hush! Be still! And Jesus had the power to make the wind and the waves be quiet. Now, we're always complaining about the weather, aren't we? It's too hot, or it's too cold, or it's too wet, or whatever. We can complain all we want about the weather, but the thing about the weather is there's not a doggone thing we can do to change it. Right? With all of our scientific research and our ability to harness energy and to do all the amazing things that man has been able to do, there's not one thing you can do to change how hot or how cold it is or how fast the wind flies or where it goes. Only God can do anything about that. And Jesus here is showing His deity... By rebuking the wind and the waves, calming them instantly, 
Now, even if the wind had stopped instantly on its own, it's going to take hours before those raging waves are finally placid and calm again. But the whole thing stops in an instant, showing the awesome power of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the greatest miracles that Jesus performed. Perhaps his greatest, by taking complete authority over the natural elements. Now, we learn here not only that Jesus may lead us into a storm and may appear to be sleeping in the storm, we also learn that he may calm the storm. And I say may, because for some people he doesn't calm it. For some he does. In your situation, he may heal you of that cancer, supernaturally. He may stop that loved one from getting sicker and sicker and sicker. He may revive them and restore them to health so that they don't die. He may financially bless you and prosper you so that you don't have to declare chapter 14 or you don't go under. The Lord may come to your rescue. He may stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves and bless you. But you know what? Sometimes he doesn't do that. Sometimes the boat goes down. Do you remember Daniel? He was in the lion's den. The lions didn't eat him. He was fine. He was happy. In the morning, they called down to him, I'm right here, I'm fine and good. But there were hundreds of Christians in the first century who were actually fed to the lions in the great Roman Colosseums. Daniel was saved from the lion. Others weren't. You go to the book of Acts. Peter's miraculously delivered from prison in Acts chapter 12. An angel comes and wakens him and brings him out of the prison. But James is beheaded. John the Baptist is beheaded. Now, why does the Lord save some and not others? Why does he stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves in one storm and let the other wind and waves in another storm just rage on? Now, that's a question we have, isn't it? And we don't know the answer. And I don't have the answer to tell you this morning. I don't think there is one. We're not going to know. Maybe we're going to find out in eternity all of these things. I don't know. But this is just one of those unanswerable things. You know, we need to thank God when the storms are calm and the Lord rebukes the wind and the waves and He takes away that thing that's oppressing us and causing us to suffer so. But we need to thank Him just as much when the winds and the waves are raging. Is he the same God in both situations? Of course he is. He's still just as good when we're suffering as he is when he takes away our suffering. He's still just as sovereign in both situations. He's exactly the same God. So we are to praise and worship him exactly the same no matter what we're going through. Psalm 34 starts off, I will bless the Lord when? At all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I will praise him when I face death. I'll praise him when I'm delivered from cancer. I don't care what's happening in my life. He's the same God always. He's good always. He's loving always. And I will praise him always. That needs to be the commitment of our hearts, folks. Our determination, our settled determination that he is good and he is sovereign always and so he deserves my worship. Well, lesson number four. The Master may reveal our hearts by the storm. We find that in verse 25. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this 
that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. So Jesus came to them, and he said, where's your faith? Now, over in Matthew's gospel, this is how it goes. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Where's your faith? Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? So what does that tell us about fear and faith? He says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Little faith produces fear. Great faith drives out fear. So where you've got a lot of faith, you're going to have little fear. When you've got a lot of fear, it means you've got little faith. They don't peacefully coexist together. If you're a person that struggles with fear constantly, ask yourself this, how much real faith do I have? in those situations. Maybe the the problem is that I've got such little faith and that's why I'm always afraid in these situations. Now, they did have some faith. He didn't say men of no faith. Men of little faith. They had faith enough to obey him to get into the boat. And when they were swamped, they had faith to go to him and wake him up. So they had some faith. But they're freaking out. They're panicking. They think they're going to die. Master, we're perishing. Now, if they had just stopped and thought a little bit, who's with us in the boat? Jesus. Who is he? Well, he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is it possible for God to let our boat sink with the Messiah sleeping in it? Doesn't sound likely to me. (laughs) So if they had just thought for a moment of who's in the boat with them, is it likely that God's going to let all of us as his apostles drown to the bottom of this boat before we even get started preaching his gospel around the world? It doesn't make any sense. But they were panicking, just like what we do. When something happens in our life, we start to panic. We start freaking out. We need to have... (laughs) such a a confidence in the sovereignty of God that when these tragedies or these things hit us, that there's an inner calm and an inner peace and an inner serenity that, that goes with us because we know God is in charge. If God let this thing happen, He's got a reason. I can trust Him in the midst of this storm. So we need to trust His Word. Remember the words of Jesus here? He didn't say, let us go into the middle of the lake and sink to the bottom. (laughs) He said, let's go on to the other side of the lake. And if they had just remembered, okay, well, the master said we're going to the other side of the lake. All right. Then I can face this storm fully trusting that God's going to get us through somehow. The great missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, who lived in the 1800s, he was once talking to another young missionary. And they had teacups on the table, and he pounded that table. And the tea that was in the teacups was spilling all over the place. And Hudson Taylor turned to that missionary, and he said, When you begin your work, you're going to be buffeted in many ways. The trials will be like blows. Remember, these blows will bring out only what is in you. Just like his blow brought out the tea that was in the teacup. He said, when you face these these storms of life, it's just going to bring out what's already inside of you. It's going to reveal the character that's in you. And that's what it's doing here to the disciples. It's revealing that they're men of little faith. 
Don't you suppose that one of the reasons Jesus led his disciples into that storm was because he needed to reveal to them that they had a lot of growing when it came to their faith to do? They were still very young, very immature in faith. They needed to grow up in terms of faith. There was a reason behind it. And so the Lord led them that way for that reason. And folks, when you hit a storm, God's going to be revealing things that are in your heart during that storm. He may show you that you have a lot of unbelief. He may show you that there's resentment in your heart, or selfishness, or bitterness, or pride, or maybe you have a critical spirit. And these things come to light as you face that storm. It just will. Well, he's doing that for a purpose. He's wanting to sanctify you. He's wanting to make you holy. So the best thing to do is, okay, I see it now, Lord. Immediately confess that sin to the Lord and then repent and ask God to give you grace to begin to walk in newness of life when it comes to that situation. Not in the old way that you've been walking. Now let's look at the result of this story. Verse 25. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? They were afraid when the storm hit them, but they were also afraid when the storm left them. And for two different reasons. They were afraid when the storm hit, because they thought they were going to die. They were afraid when the storm left, because they saw who Jesus was. And they were afraid to be in his presence. When they saw him commanding the waves and the wind, they said, who then is, who could this guy be? Who is this? There's nobody that's able to command the winds and the wave except for God. And I believe that they were starting to understand they were in the very presence of God. It's like what happened to Peter. Do you remember that time when Peter's fishing, he's coming in, and the Lord says, hey, Peter, Go launch out into the deep and let your nets down. And Peter goes, Lord, I'm exhausted. We've been working all night long. We haven't caught a single thing. But at your word, I'll go out and let my nets down. So he does. He goes out into the deep, lets his nets down, and they catch so many fish that they have to call another boat over, and both boats start to sink. And when Peter gets into the shore, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man knowing he was a sinner, made him extremely uncomfortable to be in the presence of the Son of God. Holiness personified. And I believe that's what's happening here. They're afraid and they're amazed because it's dawning on them who this person is that they're following around. This is the Creator, the Almighty, who is in their midst as a man. God incarnate. God in human flesh. So... When we begin to really understand who Jesus is, I think it's going to affect how we relate to him. He's no longer the man upstairs or my buddy that we just hang out together. You know, this very casual relationship. When you realize who Jesus is, it ought to cause you to fall on your face and worship him as God in human flesh. And there ought to be a sense of reverence and sense of fear in our lives when it comes to God and the things of God. If we're flippant and silly and frivolous when it comes to the things of God, something's wrong in our relationship to Him. We don't understand who we're dealing with. Sometimes you hear these people 
on Christian TV talk about how they're shaving and Jesus appeared to them. And it always makes me wonder, well, did they just keep on shaving while they're talking to Jesus? You know what I mean? I mean, if it just makes me wonder. It makes me wonder. What, what Jesus appeared to them? Was it the real one? God in human flesh? I don't think I'm going to keep on shaving while I'm talking to Jesus. So, folks, we're going to face storms. Sometimes in those storms, it's going to appear as Jesus is sleeping right through it. Sometimes he's going to calm them, and there are going to be other times when he doesn't. But in all of them, trust is the issue. We need to have such a relationship that we're going to trust him. Come what may. Like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I wonder, do you have that kind of heart, that kind of spirit, that that's what's in you? Whether, you know, you've received this job, a wonderful job, and it's a blessing to you. But what if you get fired next week? Are you going to leave the Lord? Are you going to forsake his church? Are you going to stop worshiping him? Are we fair-weather Christians? If my wife, God forbid, were to get cancer and die, how would that affect my faith? Am I going to fall off the deep end and say, well, if you're going to do that, Lord, I'm not worshiping you. Some people do. I meet them all the time. They say, this happened to me. I don't, I don't serve God anymore. Look, I can't. How can I trust a God like that? You can trust Him because He's a God of His Word. He's a God of integrity, a God of character. He knows what He's doing even when we don't. He'll guide us through the stormy waters. He'll guide you. So I want to exhort you this morning to trust God in the storm. And when He reveals to you those dark black things in your heart in the midst of the storm, confess them. Bring them to light. Forsake them. And repent. And God will guide you through. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us because all of us are going to face those difficult times. And... I pray that you'd be building in our lives right now the character and the faith and the trust we need to be able to safely navigate through them. Lord, make us people of your word so that we know who you are and we don't doubt in the darkness what we've learned in the light. Have your way in this flock, Lord, that they might be fortified for those onslaughts that are going to face us. In Jesus' name, amen.